that is the law. I don't know why this is so confusing. I've had people challenging me on this and put air quotes around challenging, saying, oh, they would never do that. Like, well, if they would never pull the trigger, why did they install the trigger? Now we get to the really interesting part of the great taking story. If you don't have the senior claims to your own assets, who does? Hello, everybody. I'm Chris Martinson of Peak Prosperity, and today we're taking a deeper, deeper dive into the substance of the claims behind the book, The Great Taking. We're going to go in deeper because you like to go deeper. I'm a real show me guy. I have to dig all the way down to the carpet fibers. If you're like that and you like somebody to do that work with you and for you, hey, you've come to the right place. Let's take a look at this now. This is, of course, the book by David Rogers Webb, who did an incredible service to all of us by penning this and putting this theory, not this theory, the, this collection of facts together. And here we're taking a closer look at those facts. Today, we want to look at these things called the senior claims because, um, well, remember, part one, we covered you're not really the owner of your stocks and bonds. What you are instead is a subordinated claimant and you have a security entitlement fancy weaselly legal language that basically says you don't own your own stuff because ownership as we covered in part one which you haven't seen you should go take a look requires the idea of control well if i don't control where my assets are and if i can't control getting them back i don't actually own them you have a security entitlement so we covered that but above your claims are these secured creditors so who are they right um and how would we know Best guess, these are mostly the big banks, the gigantic financial institutions. You have to read between the lines a little bit. It gets complicated quickly, but very important to know. And the senior claims, at least in total part, they're, they're mainly derivative contracts, but there are other things in there. That's what we're going to be covering today in the yellow box before we get on to the other parts of this story. So as a quick reminder, this is the kind of detail that we bring to things at Peak Prosperity. So I know a lot of you have recently subscribed because of the data and the inquiry going into this series. Remember, I don't just dig this stuff up and digest it and think about it and present it to you. I will also spend time thinking hard about what are the actual solutions because defining problems without coming up with solutions, no bueno. I like to find the solutions as well. So at Peak Prosperity, please come on by. Our subscribers get, I think, the best value. And by the way, thank you to all my Peak Prosperity subscribers who have been there supporting me and my team because they're the ones who have basically paid it forward and allowed me to dedicate my time to bring you this content now. So let's go on and look at part two here. Remember, this whole thing is about dematerialization. Whoops. Like what? My, my, my private property rights. Where'd they go? Whoosh. Fugazi, fairy dust. Off they went. There are now no property rights, writes David Rogers Webb in his book. There are no property rights to securities held in book entry form in any jurisdiction globally. It takes a lot to unpack that over that larger claim. Today, we're going to at least take part of who has senior claims. I know you want to know this. In the grand scheme to confiscate all collateral, dematerialization of securities was the essential first step. Oof, they don't belong to anybody. The planning and efforts began over a half century ago. That's true. And there was some great strategic purpose behind dematerialization as evidenced by the fact that the CIA assigned a very important person to carry out this mission. So we'll be looking at that as well later on. Shocking, but true, it turns out. 
So we have to connect a few dots today. In the U.S. Code, there are various titles, Title 11, bankruptcy. We're going to be looking at that today, a little bit out of Title 12 in banking, banks and rules. And we're going to connect that over to at least Article 8, which is investment securities. That's a fairly recent invention. You can find lawyers alive today who um, had nice, long, solid careers and know a lot and uh, <laughs> went through and passed the bar before UCC title Article 8 came forward. Um, and as well, at some point, uh, a little later on, it's going to be a whole episode. We're going to talk about, hey, they've said they're going to do it. They passed the law so they can do it. And they've actually already done it. And that's what these case precedents will be all about. So we have to untangle and connect and reconnect these four dots. These are these four or boxes here. First, your entitlement claims. Done. We've already showed that you have entitlement claims. Two, who does have senior claims? That's today. We'll be looking at that in greater detail next what happens during a bankruptcy? Like, like, how does this actually work? What is the machinery? Again, I'm that show me kind of guy. I like to know exactly what's going on so I can, if I understand the process, I think I understand the outcome a little bit better. And then finally, what happens? And this is a big loaded question. What happens when a finance, when financial, financial stability is invoked? So this relates back to, if you remember Timothy Geithner, then treasury secretary, great financial crisis. Oh no. There are these globally systemically important banks, the GSIBs, right? Uh, there are sci-fi systemically important financial institutions, too big to fail, too big to jail. These are the things. And so when those big giant players seem to be threatened, all of a sudden there is this extra thing that happens. A committee is convened. They declare it as being a threat or risk to financial stability. And then a whole other set of things get invoked. Um, and so understanding this overall process, well, it helps you understand what you really own and what you don't own. So now we're going to have to dive into the Uniform Commercial Code. That's the UCC Article 8, Part 5. In particular, the first thing they open with, uh, section, uh, uh, Article 8, Section 501, or Part 501, and then all the way at the bottom, Part 511. These are the two things that come together because they help us understand things first. Securities account acquisition of security entitlement from securities intermediary. That was what we told you about. That gives you your securities entitlement. I'll just review it again real quickly so we're all on the same page in case you didn't watch part one. And then, but this is the important one, priority among security interests and entitlement holders. Hmm, priority. That's where the devil comes into this story. Now, remember, 501 just clearly said, hey, listen, you know, if you have a securities account, you've opened up an account with one of the big brokerages, you might not even have a security account with one of the brokerages. Um, you might have a different account. It could be even a trust account, but your securities themselves are not actually held there. They're held in a central clearing party, a CCP they're called, or it could be a clearinghouse, or it could be held up through Depository Trust Corporation and their proxy seed corporation. All layers of complexity, but it turns out that if you have a securities account and your securities are held somewhere in this fugazi, fairy dust sort of a an legal construct, you said it's except is otherwise provided in sections D and E down below. A person acquires a security entitlement if your broker, your securities intermediary, whoever indicates by book entry you have that financial asset and that's what they all are. They're called book entries. That just means that it's not a physical certificate that goes from, you know, box A to box B. 
it's just a ledger account in a computer system somewhere that says these hundred shares belong to Bob, right? So boom, that's it. Uh, if you receive your financial asset, uh, and in either case, there's credit to the person's securities account. Da, da, da. The only reason that it might be that you don't have an entitlement is if D uh, or E apply, but look at D down there. If a securities intermediary holds a financial asset for another person and the financial asset is registered in the name of, payable to, or the order of, or specific, specially endorsed, uh, with an I, not an E, uh, endorsed to the other person, and he has not been endorsed to the securities intermediary, blah, blah, blah. Oh, well, then you're said to have hold, you're holding it directly and not as having a security entitlement. Now, in part two of this, I'm going to talk about what that means and how you, that gives you an out. There is a way to protect yourself in this story. So this is really important. At any rate, we've established the fact that you have a securities entitlement. Okay. Now, carrying on, well, um, this is a paper from Stanford University. It's from one of their, I, I assume, their economics department. They were looking at uh, blockchains and shareholder rights and everything. But I just want to establish for you just how well known this is, this thing we're talking about, that this isn't just some crazy misinterpretation of some title code or you know articles out there from their paper linked down below of course because i provide all the references to everything they say here if an investor holds a share today there is usually no physical paper certificate involved the investor also does not hold the security directly with the issuer instead there is an intermediated holding chain with at least one intermediary but usually more between the issuer and the investor the most important intermediary in virtually every jurisdiction is the National Central Securities Depository, the CSD, which either provides the initial registration of the securities in a book entry system or provides and maintains the securities accounts at the top of the intermediated securities holding chain. Wow, what did we get from that mouthful? It's a very complex system. It's very well established. People write papers about it. It's very well known that there is a whole chain of things going on here, but you are not the actual owner in that chain. I just want to be rock solid about this because this is a lot of people like, really? That? No. Yes. So that's what we want to establish here. They say here, for instance, the U.S. systems makes use of share immobilization where immobilized security certificates are held by the Depository Trust Corporation, that's DTC, and recorded as book entry in its accounts. There. Papers are written about it. It's very well established. So if we were going to put that into a model, it would look like this. Uh, this is the security entitlement model, again, from that paper we were just reading from. And let me get my my little, I'll just, you know, I'll just use a laser pointer here. <clears throat> so the issuer is the company, General Motors, General Electric, uh, GameStop, a, a company that issues a share and they kick that share out and it goes into one of these central security depositories. That would be the DTCC in this case. It's then passed to an intermediary. In this case, it would be Seed and Company, which is a subsidiary wholly owned of DTCC. And by the way, good luck trying to figure out who sits on the board or what the capitalization structure is of this company. I had a hard time, um, as in I got skunked. At any rate, uh, this intermediary, this actually holds, this is the physical, this is the actual named owner, in most cases, owner of that share. And then they pass down an entitlement to the next layer, which might be another intermediary, which is uh, your broker, say. But there could be a whole chain of intermediaries until finally we get to what's called the beneficial owner. That's you. If you own a 401k or a brokerage account or, you you know, it's in Robinhood or you got whatever. Um, 
you have that security entitlement. So good news, in uh, UCC Article 8, Part 511, they say, hey, I told you we'd get to that. That was the bottom of all those things. Priority among security interest and entitlement holders. Good news. It says here, except is except, except as otherwise provided in sec, subsections B and C, except for that. If a securities intermediary does not have sufficient interest in a particular financial asset, oops, to both satisfy its, to satisfy both its obligations to entitlement holders um, who have security entitlements to that financial asset and its obligation to a creditor of the securities intermediary who has a security interest in that financial asset, the claims of the entitlement holders other than the creditor have priority over the claims of the creditor. Boom, done. It is the security entitlement holder who's at the top of the chain. Oh, remember, except for subsections B and C. Well, let's read subsection B together. A claim of a creditor of a securities intermediary who has a security interest in a financial asset held by a securities intermediary has priority over claims of the security intermediary's entitlement holders who have security entitlements with respect to that financial asset if the creditor has control over the financial asset. Like, oh, you totally own them unless somebody else has a claim on them, in which case you don't. <laughs> like, why even have Section A? Section A is like, unless otherwise provided, you own them. B right away is just like, you don't own them. <laughs> they belong to somebody else if they have, if they say have a claim to them. So they're setting up the, the priority sets of claims here. And by the way, this isn't part of the bankruptcy code, right? This is part of the Uniform Commercial Code. This is why it's so complicated. This should be over in the bankruptcy code. It ought to be right there. We define all kinds of things in bankruptcy. You got your chapter sevens, you got chapters 11, chapter 13, all sorts of different rules, lots of language. You could read those all day long and you won't find this. This is hanging out over here in the Uniform Commercial Code. Article eight, just hanging out there. I love that though. Except as otherwise provided, the claims of the entitlement holders other than the creditor have priority over the claim of the creditor. <laughs> and then next one's like that. And, and, unless the creditor has a security interest in that same thing that you're trying to claim access to, in which case they have priority over the entitlement holder. Who even writes this stuff? I mean, this is just, this is such a, um, I, I, I've, I lost the ability to form words at several points during, and I'm just smiling because I have to laugh. This is just such a, this is such a comical, tragic comic, Greek tragic comedy kind of a thing getting written up here. This is really, in, this is insane, people. This is just insane. Because again, as I've mentioned, the cornerstone of Western prosperity has been property rights. And here they're disintermediating and saying, you don't have access to these financial assets, right? And they've already said it in the banking system. You don't actually own your own bank deposits, but you're going to have to use banks because we're going to outlaw cash. So they're going to force everybody into these systems where you don't own anything anymore. This is, how is this not communism? How is this not financial vandalism on the pillars of prosperity? All right. Uh, okay. I'm off my, off my high horse for a second. Let's carry on. Or C, if a clearing corporation does not have sufficient financial assets, uh, junkity junk, the claim of the creditor has priority over the claims of the entitlement holders. Oh, 
So, hey, part A says you totally, no, you totally own these things. Unless, unless it's your broker, uh, then it's sorry. This <laughs> is a financial intermediary. Mm, yeah, no, then you don't have priority claims. Or, or if it's a clearing corporation, uh, same thing. You don't have priority claims there either. It's, it's just, there it is in black and white. And by the way, you could check in your country. Uh, the harmonization process means that it reads like this pretty much everywhere now. Um, so at any rate, that's what we know. Okay. So what are then? Okay. What, what are these senior claims then? So now we have to truck over to, to, uh, title 12 right? Which is out of the laws of the United States. So the bankruptcy code's title 11, but title 12 is really talking about banks and banking and stuff like that. And in title 12, part 5390. So you have to dig pretty deep to find this, which I did here it is. And by the way, there's a link to it right down there. It says, um, well, uh, rights of parties to contracts. So now we're back over in the laws. We've come out of the uniform commercial code. So now we had to truck back over. This is why it's so hard to unravel all this and it took me forever to, to find the actual important threads. I think I've done it. I reserve the right to continue learning more. Um, this is in uh, 5390 number eight, certain qualified financial cre- uh, contracts, a part a rights of parties to contracts. He says subject to section subsection 8a and paragraphs 9 and 10 of this subsection and notwithstanding any other provision in this section notwithstanding means nothing else matters this has priority notwithstanding is this legal term that says by the way this overrides anything else you might read anywhere else so you, all the rest is junk notwithstanding any other provision of this section any other provision of federal law or the law of the state now, this is the feds taking over the laws of the state. They're saying you don't have jurisdiction here, notwithstanding any federal laws, any other provisions or any law of any state. We don't care. Here's what happens. No person shall be stayed. That is prevented um, or prohibited from exercising. OK, this is getting juicy. I one um, any right that such person has to cause the termination liquidation or acceleration of any qualified financial contract with a covered financial company. I'll cover tell you what both those things mean, which arises from the date of appointment of the corporation as receiver. The corporation in this language means the FDIC, um, the federal deposit insurance corporation. They become the receiver for these banks and bank companies like that. All right. Um, and also become a receiver for such covered financial company or at any time after such appointment. Okay. Now they say, all right, let me decode that. It says that, listen, if there are certain qualified financial contracts, nobody, nobody, a person, in this case, a person could be a hedge fund. It could be JP Morgan. They, they call them persons. Uh, don't ask me why. Um, they say that if they have a cause if, or they just want to, if they have a reason or they decide to accelerate, terminate, liquidate a qualified financial contract, they get, they can do that. They, they, Right. The no person shall be stayed or prohibited from exercising their right to terminate, liquidate, or accelerate. This is just saying, listen, certain people who, uh, persons who are very special, who have a qualified financial contract, 
they yeah they you know they have priority and also they can um you can't stop them from like the, this whole thing goes into bankruptcy and you and this jp morgan rides in and says uh we would like that money over there because it's it's tied up in a financial qual qualified financial contract and we're just going to take that right that's what this is saying and so a qualified financial contract i'll tell you what those are in just a minute we'll cover those you won't be surprised or maybe you will find out what those are um and then a covered financial company is language that says oh we're a little worried that this company if it went and died uh, a bankruptcy death that it would create financial instability or would threaten the financial stability of the u.s that is a judgment call we'll be talking about that in more detail in a future episode because it is that important this is where the things go off the rails this is where post great financial crisis this junk got written in and it's just a bankers and a big giant financial company's wet dream and now we're living with it and looking at it but whoever penned these shame on you whoever passed these laws double shame on you congress senate this is the reason we the people have lost so much of our faith with you and in you is because you pass junk like this that is no good for the country for its future for its prosperity or the people you allegedly serve this is pure corporate thievery full stop okay so uh and then they say um uh as well no person shall be stayed or prohibited from exercising to any right under any security agreement or arrangement or other credit enhancement related to one or more qualified financial contracts oh there's the qfc's again we're going to talk about those look at that any right under any security agreement or arrangement this is so vague and it's vague on purpose laws are supposed to be precise thou shalt not drive faster than 55 miles per hour in this zone right pretty precise for you and me when it gets to these people uh you know uh, any uh arrangement or other credit enhancement nobody even knows what that means right a credit enhancement like that's <laughs> meant to be vague because they can tuck anything they want like this is the kitchen sink clause here it's like you know any any anything you know just whatever we couldn't think of it all on the spot so whatever it's covered um or three any right uh, again no person shall be stayed or prohibited from exercising any right to offset or net out any termination value payment amount or other transfer obligation arising under or in connection with one or more contracts or agreements described in clause uh, i including any master agreement for such contracts or agreements uh, it could be one contract many agreements could be a master agreement we don't care um they're covered this is really important so this is under this is not this isn't part of the bankruptcy code though but it's over there and it interacts with the bankruptcy code enormously because in bankruptcy it turns out that um certain qualified financial contracts you can't stop them from being exercised they have priority they have precedence they're number one so what is a qualified financial contract i'm glad you asked uh there you go hope you can read quick <laughs> it's a wall of text oh boy you know this is going to get spicy right uh, let me break it down. We'll, we'll dive in a little bit deeper. So qualified financial contracts include securities contracts, also defined here in uh, Section 12, sorry, Title 12, Section 5390, Part D, certain contracts and agreements defined. Uh, 
the following definitions shall apply. They say qualified financial contract. This this is the money shot right here. If you ever if you want to know where the heart of the beast was, it's in these next pieces that come. All right. The term qualified financial contract means any securities contract, commodity contract, forward contract, repurchase agreement, swap agreement, and any similar agreement that the corporation, again, the FDIC, determines by regulation, resolution, or order, because we just made it up on the spot, so we just ordered it. Like <laughs> It's in a bankruptcy, like, that qualifies, Bob, because you gave enough money to the Democrats this year, so we're going to call that loan that you you have with this company. That's a QFC today, you know, or something like that, right? It's just, it should not be this way, but it is. Uh, so at any rate, uh, yeah, if you've heard some of these words before, though, commodity contract, forward contract, repos, swaps, these are derivatives. So we'll get into derivatives. I have a whole episode on that, but I'll just give you a little context at the tail end of this one so you know what we're talking about, okay? A securities contract means... Any means a contract for the purchase, sale, or loan of a security or certificate of deposit, a mortgage loan, any interest in a mortgage loan, or a group or index of securities, index of securities, certificates of deposit, mortgage loans, or interest therein, or any option on any of the foregoing, including any option to purchase or sell any such security, certificate of deposit, mortgage loan, repurchase, blah, 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 and so on and repos and repurchase agreements. So a securities contract is basically anything you can think of, right? That isn't one of these other things. Carrying on, look at these securities contracts. Um, first, it does not include mortgage, commercial mortgage loans. So those don't qualify. I don't know why they got a carve out on those, but like this whole commercial mortgage accident that's unfolding here in 2024, that's not covered under this. So that's kind of an interesting wrinkle. More on that later in a future episode. Uh, also, it three means any option entered into on a national securities exchange relating to foreign currencies, hmm. options on currencies, those are securities contracts. Those take precedence over your weak ass security entitlement claims, right? Or four means the guarantee, including by novation, um, which is a fancy term for an intermediary and, and how they both buy and sell at the same time. It's irrelevant. Don't worry about it. Um, but means the guarantee buy or to any securities clearing agency of any settlement of cash, securities, certificate of deposit, mortgage loans, interest therein, group or index securities, certificates of deposit, or mortgage loans, or interest therein, including any interest therein based on the value thereof, or an option of any of the foregoing, including an option to purchase or sell any such security, certificate of deposit, mortgage loan, on and on and on. Oh, means any margin loan. I'm going to talk about margin loans when I talk about the part on bankruptcy and where the trouble might start. That's also in a future episode, but bookmark that margin loans. We need to know about them. So that's securities contracts. And by the way, security contracts, they have a lot of any's in this section. This section just goes on and on, right? It, it means any extension of credit for the, or, or for the clearance or settlement of securities transactions. It means any loan transaction coupled with a securities collar transaction any prepaid securities and forward con for forward transaction or any total return swap transaction. It means any other agreement or transaction that is similar to any agreement or transaction referred to here. So we're like this was the kitchen sink again. Like, hey Jane, did we forget anything? She's like, I don't know. Let's put in let's put in section eight on this thing. Uh 
It means any other agreement or transaction that is similar to any agreement or transaction <laughs> referred to in this clause. It means any combination of the agreements or transactions referred to in this clause. It means any option to enter into any agreement or transaction referred to in this clause. And it carries on from there. So securities contract pretty much means anything, anything. These all have priority claim over your security entitlement. And I just wanted to go through some of this detail to show you just how broad this is. These things are written in. This is the law. Now, here's the re here's why this is important. If somebody writes a law, that is the law. I don't know why this is so confusing. I've had people challenging me on this and put air quotes around challenging, saying, oh, they would never do that. Like, well, if they would never pull the trigger, why did they install the trigger? Second, as we will see in a future episode, <clears throat> they've already pulled the trigger. And there are already case precedents that have already gone through the legal system. So they stand there and sit there. So they pass the law and they've tested the law. And then people are trying to hold on to their sense that the world shouldn't be this way. So they say, oh, that would never happen. Well, we thought a lot of things wouldn't happen during the COVID era and they did. So remember, didn't have to be this way and plant a garden. That's what I take out of this. So let's carry on. Um, so what are these qualified financial contracts that aren't those securities we just talked about? And they say, uh, D, certain contracts and agreements as defined, the following definitions shall apply. A qualified financial, financial contract means any securities contract, commodity contract, forward contract, repurchase agreement, swap agreement, and any similar agreement that the FDIC, the corporation, determines by regulation, resolution, or because they just made it up or order to be a qualified financial contract for purposes of this paragraph. So, ah, uh, securities, uh, so commodities, forwards, repos. Well, um, they have a whole thing on commodity contracts here, right? These are just derivatives. A commodity contract is uh, a, an agreement to buy or sell oil, gold, silver, wheat, pork bellies. It doesn't matter. They all trade out there on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, other places, NYMEX. It's a, it's a, it's, these are derivatives. You don't actually own the pork bellies when you sell them. You just enter an agreement to buy or sell them, you know, and, and so on for most people. I mean, there are legitimate producers and consumers that sometimes use the forwards and futures markets. But for the most part, 90 plus percent of those markets in most cases, sometimes a lot more, are actually just big banks financial intermediaries, bettors, speculators, et cetera, hedge funds, buying and selling these things without any interest ever in taking delivery. So here we see a commodities contract, um, you know, it's respect with respect to a futures commission merchant. It's a contract for the purchase or sale of a commodity for future delivery. Okay. As they say, uh, with respect to a foreign futures commission merchant, it, it could be a foreign future it could be uh, a leverage transaction. It could be respect to a clearing organization, a contract for the purchase or sale of a commodity for future delivery or subject to the rules of a, of a contract market or board of trade and on and on. I'll let you read all of that. But um, it's it's just a, it's a big, wide world of derivatives. And by the way, there are trillions of dollars of these commodity derivatives floating around. Uh, forward contracts also defined in that this is a qualified financial contract. It's forward contract. Same set of ideas. It's like a commodity contract, but it's a forward contract. A lot of gold trades on the forward market uh, out there. And that's one of the ways they use for the price suppression of gold. And um, uh, as I mentioned before, 
So uh, already, sorry, already put that one up there, um, which is a securities contract. So are these things called repos, the so-called repos? Those are a qualified financial contract. These are a repurchase agreement. And this means an agreement um, which provides for the transfer of one or more certificates, a deposit, a mortgage, an MBS or mortgage related security, uh, blah, 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 blah. It, it's for cash. It's a repurchase agreement. So the Federal Reserve engages in repos all the time. If the market suddenly blew up and the Fed had a bunch of repos outstanding, those would be qualified financial contracts that would take precedence over any other things that you might hold and call your security entitlements. Swap agreements, this is really important. So people swap all kinds of things. Um, These the swap options, it could be a, a rate floor for the interest rates. It could be a rate cap on interest rates. It could be a rate collar, again, on interest rates. It could be a cross-currency rate swap, a basis swap, uh, a spot, a same day, to, uh, uh, same day tomorrow, a tomorrow next, a forward or other for a foreign exchange could be precious metal swaps agreements or other commodities, currency swaps, debt swaps, you name it. People are swapping stuff. Hey, I don't like this interest rate. You want it? You're like, yeah, I like that interest rate. I'll take it. Um, so people are, these swaps are uh, derivative contracts where, again, very complicated world. Don't mean to, to dive into it. We'll get into this in derivatives in more detail. But just to put it in context, this comes from the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, OCC.gov. And this is uh, looking at um, just the top four banks, four banks in the United States. Um, these are commercial banks and saving associations. Just these four banks have over $200 trillion in notional derivatives alone. And and again, just look at these top bar, forwards and futures. Um the let's see we've got um what's this next one here just a second let me take a peek uh oh swaps and then options yes yeah, swaps options and um credit derivatives and so so you can see that actually those swaps the swaps is the biggest bar on there so that's why when i talk about oh yeah you know swaps are, are a qualified financial contract that have precedence over your measly little security entitlement in a bankruptcy or a workout proceeding just four banks in the U.S. have $200 trillion in just these types of, of derivative arrangements right now. But when we go out to the globe, we find out that from the BIS for the first half of 2023, which is the latest data we have, that number right there, which is, let me get my tool back out here. That's 714, that's 714 trillion, because these are in billions of dollars. So 714,000 billion is 714 trillion. So all the contracts that they added up in OTC, over-the-counter derivatives contracts, when they pulled various firms and they hopefully filled this in accurately and they said, uh, here's how much stuff we have. Um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of trillions of these things, right? And by the way, these things include, uh, you know, 70 trillion in outright forwards and forex swaps, currency swaps, options, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then when we look at this, uh, there's another type, which are called exchange-traded futures and options. There's a 87 trillion of those as of September 2023. Again, do the sample they did. And that's basically futures, about 36 trillion in futures, and about 50 trillion, 51 trillion in options. So when you add these numbers up, if they get into trouble, well... If these options suddenly blow up or these futures suddenly blow up, the markets really move. And then 
these people who hold these things are using as collateral to guarantee their side of the deal stocks and bonds that they borrowed from your account, then the settling of these derivatives takes precedence over and above giving you your stocks and bonds back should a blow up happen. So the way I think of this is kind of like, think of it, it's like we're all playing a game of blackjack. It's a game of chance, right? Wall Street's a big game of chance. You're over there playing your hand. If you win, your pile of chips goes up. If you lose, your pile of chips goes down. Same thing for the person to your left, who's one of these big financial intermediary players or, you know, one of these derivative players or whatever, but their rules are a little different. Their rules, because of what we've just read, go like this. Hey, they just bet like crazy. And if their chip stack goes up, they keep them. But if their chip stack goes down and gets floored out at zero, they get to just reach over and take some of your chips and put them back onto their pile so they can keep playing. That's the model we have here. Um, and so when we look at how much of these things are trading on a per day basis, just so we get a sense of the scale of this, it turns out the answer is about seven and a half trillion dollars of derivatives are trading per day. Big flow. They're being opened and closed, traded, bought, sold, all kinds of things like that. And when we look across this, we see that, well, not surprisingly, um, a big chunk of that, about half of that's happening in the United Kingdom. Maybe that's a little surprising. I would have thought the United States would have been bigger, but the UK, I guess the sun never did quite set on old blighty over there, right? Uh, the UK, London is an epicenter of this derivative trading fiasco that's going on. And so to the extent I've looked into it, the UK laws around everything that we're talking about now, pretty much the same. And so again, they've just structured the laws to say, we like this game. We like playing this. We're trading trillions of these things every day. We're skimming our pennies off of those things and we're making Boku bucks. And we like that. And we're going to keep that money. And that's why you've seen things like, I don't know, yacht sales and private jets and all these things have exploded in sales and price because the people who are doing this are skimming like crazy out of the system and they like it that way. However, if the system blows up, they wouldn't like to have to actually live with the repercussions of that. So they've written the rules to make sure that they get to reach in and grab the collateral. That's your stocks and bonds from you and me right? Should they ever get in trouble? That's just how they set this up. Now, that's not fair. Of course it isn't. And that's why you have things like when um, Plutarch said, the oldest and most fatal ailment of all republics is a gap between the rich and the poor. It's deeply unfair when things like this get set up. It's deeply unfair and we are a social species. So unfairness doesn't really play. It's okay as long as we're not under a lot of stress. But as soon as we get a little stressed, the unfairness is no bueno. And that's what I don't think these geniuses over here have really thought through. But they're carrying on with their articles of deception. Now, this is now we're down to the punchline and we're wrapping up here. Um, so get this. Th this is this is also from title. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Title 12 of the code this is about banks and banking and all that stuff. Right. So it says, oh, yeah. Um, certain transfers not avoidable. Again, there's that word notwithstanding. Now, you know what that means. Notwithstanding, like you can ignore everything else you might read anywhere else. Notwithstanding any of that. Not, nothing. Notwithstanding subsection A11, A12, C12, section 91 of this title, any other provision of state or federal law relating to the avoidance of preferential or fraudulent transfers. <laughs> so preferential and fraudulent transfers are, are when you take money out of an account when you shouldn't because you know the ship is sinking and you 
give it to your uncle, right? They say, notwithstanding any of that stuff, the corporation, FDIC again, whether acting as the corporation or as receiver for a covered financial company may not avoid any transfer of money or other property in connection with any qualified financial contract with a covered financial company. The only exception down there is they say, well, if it was actually overt fraud, that, okay, we, we don't allow that, I guess. Um, but it, even that's been softened up and it doesn't mean quite what it used to mean. Look at this. Doesn't if, if, if your financial intermediary goes bankrupt and the trustee is named and it's the FDIC, they've taken it into receivership. That happens on a Friday. Monday, you know, you can't get access to your money. But that trustee, that receiver, may not avoid a transfer of money or other property in connection with any qualified financial contract, which, as we now know, is a fairly loose and very broad and very expansive term that includes a lot of things, all derivatives and a lot of other things besides. So this is absolutely unbelievable that this has happened. This is full robbery, right in plain sight. And by the way, this pertains to when you consider the shares that you might lose in something like this, because you are a security entitlement holder, not the actual property owner of the shares you bought with money that you earned, that you had already paid taxes on, and you're now taking risks, putting that in the market, playing that whole game, doing your due diligence, being a good financial investor, being a good citizen, paying your taxes, pay, raising your children right, eh, we might just have to take all your hard-earned stuff from you. Because the shares actually don't represent what most people think they do. The shares are actual ownership interests in the company. So if those shares all go get taken away because of this, because of this right here, because these transfers are not avoidable and they have precedence and priority over your assets, then that means that you lose not just your money, but also control over all of the valuable property, plant, and equipment in this country. Because this applies to, to stocks and bonds. This is debt. This is everything. This is all of it. This, this is everything right? But wouldn't you know it, it really mostly just applies to the retail side because the wealthy have ways out of this and ways around this. And so that's some of the stuff that we'll be talking about in part two. Um, but remember, you know, you do remember, you don't have priority over these creditors who now have these side bets with each other, numbering in the hundreds and hundreds of trillions, probably quadrillions, if we're being honest, we don't know how much, but there they are. And remember, except as otherwise provided in subsections B and C, the claims of the entitlement holders have priority over the claim of the creditor. Unless B, a claim of the creditor of a securities intermediary who has a security interest in a financial asset held by a securities intermediary has priority over claims of the security intermediary's entitlement holders <laughs> who have security entitlements after all. And that's that. <laughs> I just... Ah, this, this is great. That's like, that's, that's like, that's like if you sell lottery tickets, people are like, and they scratch it off and it says you have won. You know, you're like, oh my God, I won a million dollars. And there's a little asterisk on it, you know, unless you've scratched off the, the surface, in which case this is a void ticket, right? Like, it's just the stupidest thing ever. All right. So we're, we're all right, campers. I'm ending that here for the public part. We're back at peak prosperity for my subscribers. And again, thank you to all my subscribers because you allowed me to do reporting like this. Uh, we are going to be taking this to part two and we're talking solutions and responses. I do think there's a way out of this stuff. We're going to take a close look at that. 
So thank you very much for listening to this. Can't wait to talk with my subscribers about this back of peak prosperity. Please consider becoming one because you owe it to yourself. You need to know this. Thank you very much. And I'll look forward to part three in a week. Bye-bye.